Check it out, man. Check it out. <laughs> okay, where do we start? Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. If anybody wants to contact me for any reason at all, please do so by email. The address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. And also, don't forget, there is the website, themaltedmuse.com, where there are links, more information, and a contact form. I'd also like to remind people that I have got a daughter who's about to do a charity trip to Timbuktu, and that is to raise money for two charities, the British Heart Foundation and PLAN, who help children in 48 of the world's most poorest countries. Now, if you want to donate, you can do this online, and that money goes straight through to those charities straight away. If you want to donate and for the money to go to the British Heart Foundation, just visit www.justgiving.com slash Timbuktu-challenge. If you want to donate and for the money to go to Plan UK, visit www.justgiving.com slash star. That money will be well used and it'd be just great to give some support. Anyway, let's move on for the focus of today's episode. Now, the last episode was based around some interviews I conducted at Weed Ram Fest in Bakewell. Some of the people there, they have a quality about them that can be hard to put a finger on. People like David Doig, John Black, people who have that sense that they hold a secret knowledge. See, this is what happens when one meets a highly skilled traditional craftsman. Whilst the academic can learn about a subject, their objectivity, it can remove them from that subject a bit. They can be knowledgeable and yet somehow detached. The connoisseur, he can be full of passion and eagerness, but often this is a longing, a searching for something. The people I interviewed, these highly skilled craftsmen, they're different somehow. Like the academics, they are very knowledgeable. Like the connoisseur, they're passionate and full of eagerness. But unlike others, they connect to whiskey in a different way. Their experiences have developed at a very intimate level for a very long time, even to the point of being born in a distillery. The detachment is not there. One gets a sense that these guys are whiskey. They have been with it so closely, so long, they have joined with it. Now, I'm not going to play the game of asking who's the best, because, well, it's an irrelevant question, and it cannot and need not be answered. I have, however, taken one interview and kept it separate for an episode in its own right. And that was my interview with Brooke Laddie's Jim McEwen. Now, I've done this for two main reasons. Firstly, because it was a much longer interview, and secondly, it was actually a pre-requested interview. Now, I have heard that to interview Jim McEwen, all you needed to do was to point a microphone at him and say hello. However, despite having heard Jim speak before, having heard him being interviewed many times, having communicated with him by email for a number of years, be that sporadically, I was not prepared for the degree of openness and warmth, not to mention passion, that he had. 
Jim McEwen is a legend of which there is no doubt. Pick up almost any decent whiskey book and he'll be mentioned in it. Now a good and obvious example of that is Whiskey Dream, Waking a Giant by Stuart Rivens. And it's the story of the rebirth of Brookladdy Distillery. It is a wonderful book, even though it does blow the uh, Brookladdy trumpet quite well. Do you know, it's a trumpet that's worth blowing. And of course, Jim McEwen is featured in that book almost all the way through. Another good book to read, The Secret Still by Gavin D. Smith. Now that's an eye-opening book, goes into lots of detail. And again, in this book, we find reference and reference about Jim McEwen sharing his knowledge. Now another book by the same author, Gavin D. Smith, and actually one of my favourite whiskey books, The Whiskey Men. Remember the first time I read this book, I was on holiday, and it's one of those rare occasions for me where I just couldn't put it down. And again, one of the key players in this book, Jim McEwen. A book I'm reading currently, Pete Smoke and Spirit, a portrait of Isla and its whiskies by Andrew Jefford. And this is a lovely book. It's not reviewed on the website at the moment. The other books are, but this one isn't. Um, because I haven't quite finished it. I'm taking my time with this book. I'm enjoying every single bit of it. And do you know Jim McEwen? Oh yeah, he's in this book as well. And not also to forget, Oz and James, Drink to Britain. Yep, sure enough, he's in this book, and of course he was on their television series. I could go on with other books, but those are just some of those some of the books that came to my hand. So here I am at the Wee Dram Fest. I've had a chat with Adrian, owner of the Wee Dram, an event organizer. I had a chat with Peter from the Scottish Liqueur Company. And I enjoyed that fantastic Bunnerhaven that we mentioned last time. Then I walk over to try and interview Jim McEwen. He stood there with Duncan McGilvery, another legend. And they both are surrounded by groups of people. I try to talk, but I'm lost in that small crowd. One of my friends asks me which Brookladdy they should try. Almost without thinking, I just say, X4 plus 3, I'll tell you about it later. And I managed to get a glass of it myself. I managed to get Jim's attention, and almost straight away, someone else pushes in. Jim glances up at me, hardly looking towards me. He asks, do you want to go next door? I answer, OK. Despite further interruptions, we go into the kitchen area, where Jim asks if I want tea or coffee. I say no, but think to myself that I could easily quaff the X4 plus 3 that's in my hand. Jim politely ushers someone out of the room, and I clumsily begin the interview. Now this is a strange experience for me. I am used to interviewing. I am a trained specialist psychiatric nurse who spent over 20 years interviewing people about the most sensitive of subjects. Yet today I am nervous. Why? I think it was fear. What if this legend turns to me and says, you know nothing, you've got it all wrong? What if I waste my chance and don't ask the right questions? And what if my recording equipment fails, which actually it later on did, and I nearly lost all of it. The interview starts, and within moments the nerves go, and it feels more like two blokes sharing some old stories with each other. How did that change happen? Now, I think it partly it was Jim's openness and warmth, but mainly... I think it was his passion, his passion for whiskey, which was shared by my own passion for whiskey. We had common ground, another wonderful thing about whiskey. Now, apart from some minor interruptions, I have not edited this interview. 
I've actually left in my own bits as well. Not that I find them particularly, or I think you will find them particularly interesting, but because I think they actually added to and made sense of the flow of the conversation. I have also taken out one part of the interview, which I have done for all the interviews at Weedram Fest. And that bit that I take out, I've taken out, will be put back again in a separate episode, uh, which I will be doing later on. So anyway, enough preamble. I am very proud to present the Jim McEwen interview. Right, well, first of all, Jim, thank you ever so much. I'll be honest with you, before the interview, before coming here, I've been really nervous, and one of the things I've been nervous about is meeting this legend called Jim McEwen. Why would you be nervous about meeting a guy who's not a legend, who's just a beaten-up old whiskey maker? You, know? you are a legend. You are a legend. I've been trying to work out how to explain to people, outside of the whiskey world, what sort of a bloke you are. And the best I could come up with is if you were a pop singer, there'd be hordes of people outside trying to get in. You are one of those names that, is, that, that goes through. Everybody hears about you. You've influenced yeah. whiskey quite a lot. And that leads me on to my first question. With that sort of, of, of fame, how is there great responsibility that comes with it? Yeah, you're right. There is a responsibility. For example, <clears throat> the responsibility comes in, in many ways. Uh, for example, today, here we are in Bakewell doing a festival. Yeah. Now, it's very important when you're meeting people that, that you always remain sober and pleasant and so on. So often now I go around the world and I go to many, many festivals. <clears throat> I look at some of the younger ones that are coming in and they're getting drunk, you know what I mean? on the stands, right. whereas the consumers come in, paid a lot of money to come in here and they want the education and so on. So uh, there is a responsibility to your consumer for you to give them your very, very best. So people associate, hey, you're going around the world, you're doing all that, you must be drinking all the time. In actual fact, I taste lots and lots of whiskey, but I drink very, very little. So that's one sense of responsibility. When you're facing up to the consumer, it's important that you realise what a privileged position you're in and how important it is that the information that you give them is clearly understood by them and it also helps them to enter deeper into the category. And, you know. So we have a responsibility to our consumers yeah. to be at our best at all times. And sometimes it's difficult. You know, you a lot of flying, a lot of travelling, and a lot of making whiskey and all that. But I have never, ever lost that enthusiasm for it. I really, I still feel as enthusiastic today and I'm 62 years old and I've been doing it for 48 years in the whiskey business. I still feel that same buzz as I felt when I started as an apprentice cooper in 1963 in Beaumont Distillery, a skinny little lad of 15. You know, I still have that same love, passion for the product. Where does that love come from? Though? What's well, the inspiration behind that? When you're <clears throat> born on the island of Isla, uh, which is a diamond, you know, of an island. And I was born, I could actually hit the distillery wall with a stone when I was eight years old. I was that born that right. close to the distillery. So a lot of my young uh, scampish years as a kid were spent in the distillery, sweeping floors and helping the guys out. And generally, be, and be a bit of a nuisance, I suppose. But I always did something in the distillery. I was fascinated by the whole thing, the smells. Particularly the smell strains enough. I love the smells of the hot mash and the whiskey. Yeah. And at night time when the wind was blowing and the peat fires were burning, you would get a smell coming through your bedroom. So from a very, very early age, and my grandfather had been a mopman at Bumore, and his father before him. So it was a little bit in the blood there, but I was just working with these guys. And then I particularly liked cooperage, coopering. I used to go and sit in the cooperage, you know. And there was always a big fire going in the cooperage because there was always oak chippings and all that stuff and the coopers were working hard, the hammers were battering and they were drinking hard and they were firing the cask. It was like being inside a, a devil's cauldron, you know, flames coming out of barrels and tough guys and I was like, ah, this is amazing. So I, I always wanted to become a cooper 
and uh, that's how I started as an apprentice cooper. So I served yeah. six years. But during that six years at the moor, uh, as, an, as an apprentice, if there was any jobs going, like in the malt barns, uh, if somebody wanted a weekend off, I would do the weekends. I learned to malt, I learned to mash, I learned to distill, just by fitting in. And am I right in thinking you still got the same cooper's tools? Still got them, yeah. You, I can still yeah. use them. Yeah. Maybe not as fast as I used to use them, but I can still use them. It takes me a bit longer to get around the barrel now, but still got them, yeah. Is that important for you to do? Well, the set of tools, this is rather a long story, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but the guy who taught me to be a cooper was the number one cooper in Scotland. Yeah. When you become a cooper, you get a number. And as people die and leave the craft, you move up. You move up. And eventually, if you stay long enough and live long enough, you'll get to number one. So my teacher was a guy called Davy Bell, and he was number one. And uh, he was everything in my life. And he died at the age of 99. Yeah. And every day, he had two whiskies. Yeah, one about just before his dinner in the evening, five, six o'clock, and then one before he went to bed. Never one, never three. Always two stolen from the cask. Yeah. We always filled the box. But like we all did, we all stole from the cask. <laughs> and um, I moved on, I went to Glasgow and I trained to become a whiskey blender. And um, I got a message to say that my mentor was dying, who I loved, yeah. like. You know, it's just, he was a phenomenal guy, you know, a lovely, lovely old man, he was a great guy. And I heard he was dying and he hadn't long to live, so I flew home to say goodbye to my old friend at 99. Mm. And I went to his house, he had great, great grandchildren because he's 97. And the little house was full of people. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me, his wife said to me, Jim, would you like to see Dad alone? And I said, yeah, that would be really great just to say goodbye, you know, I'm really yeah. emotional. So I went into the bedroom and he had shrunk, he was like small, but he was still there, you know. And he saw me and he smiled and, and I said to him, how are you doing, Davey? And he just said, yeah. Just whispered to him, it was okay, you know. And I said, I'm trying to cheer myself up and I'm trying to cheer him up. I said, tomorrow we're going to build barrels. You're 99 and we're going to start building bars to try and cheer him up and myself because I'm like, my heart is breaking because yeah. my best friend's leaving me. And he said, no, 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 we're not building bars. And he indicated to me to come down close. And he whispered in my ear, he said, Jim, I've spoken to the man and I'm leaving tonight. I've spoken to God, he was leaving tonight. He was quite a devout Christian. He said, but I've left you a gift, son. And the gift I'm leaving you means you'll always have money in your pocket. And it's in this secret place that only you and I know. And I said, nah, it's okay, we'll be bold and cast them out. I didn't know what he was talking about yeah. in terms of the gift. He did die that night. He had a huge funeral. And then a week after, I went up to the home and I spoke to his son. And I said, I had a conversation with your dad, whereby he said to me that he had left me a gift in the special place. The special place was in his little garden shed where there was a false plank in the floor that oh. could be lifted out. It's where we used to hide the whiskey that we stole right. under the floorboards of the shed. That was a secret place. So we would steal whiskey and we'd put it under the floor. So I took his son in, showed him the secret room, and we lifted the floorboards. And what he had done was absolutely amazing. You started a conversation about tools. What he had done he had taken his set of tools, the saws, the axes, the knives, the head knives, the crumb knives, the full set of his tools. He had sharpened them beyond belief and he had wrapped them up in hessian sackcloth mm -hmm. soaked in linseed oil. Now he had done this some time ago in preparation for his death. He could have done this 10 years before thinking about it. And this was the gift he left me. You would always have a penny in your pocket because you had tools. tools. That's the tools I got. And I still use them, but I treasure them. You know? Yeah. It's a great story, you know. It is a good, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's quite weird. I mean, this isn't related to whiskey, um, so I should cut this bit out anyway. But as you were saying that, it, it reminded me of something, which was um, when I first started my trade, which was nursing, 
mm-hmm. psychiatric nursing. I had to do a stint in a general hospital. And one of the patients there was a, he was the grumpiest bloke you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And he used to moan about everything being dead. None of the other nurses would go near him, they couldn't stand him. And um, I mean, you can wonder about the ethics of that. Whether it's my psychiatric leaning or not, I don't know. But I just took one look at him and thought, you're in some pain here. So I, I spent time, I sat, started talking to him. And it dawned on me that all this talk about things being dead, it wasn't him being grumpy, it was him coping. It was his humour coming through, this rather twisted humour. Not that this bears much relationship to what, what you just said, it's just that it, it, it triggered off this memory in my mind. His, his health deteriorated, and um, I was coming up to a weekend off, said goodbye to him, and he just gave me one of these looks as if to say, I might see you, I might not. Right. Yeah. I, came, <coughs> I came back from my weekend leave, his name was still on the board, and uh, the sister said, He's still around, you know, he's been asking for it all weekend. So I went into the bay, first thing I did, sat down next to him and said, I won't say his name, but I said, you know, how are you, how's things going? He held me by the hand and just said, I've just been waiting, Jim. I know me time to, I've just been waiting. I said, waiting for what? He said, just wanted to say goodbye properly. And, and that was it, off he went. And, you know, it's things like that. I mean, with you, the story is to do with the tools. But it's actually the occasion as well. It's, it becomes part of you, do you know what I mean? It's funny how it, uh, one conversation kicks off. Yeah, yeah. That, that was good that you took time with him and nobody else was taking time with him. That was good. Yeah. And you obviously appreciated it so much that you kept living for yeah. another 48 hours just to yeah. say thank you. Yeah, That's Phenomenal. Yeah. So, you know, when you think about it, yeah. you can imagine in that period when he was waiting for you to come back, the stress he must have done through. Every time the door opened, he must have said, is yeah. that Jim coming back? Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. Is that you? Yeah, it's peculiar. Sorry, I digress. But anyway, okay, so coming back to talking about whiskey. And responsibility. And responsibility. Yeah. And you said, how does it feel to go down the one? Uh, one thing I, I can honestly say to you, uh, I've always regarded myself as being the most privileged person in the world. You know, I've been able to travel the world, I've learned many, many skills, I've met some of the most amazing people in the world. I've been in crazy situations and it's been a great privilege to be an ambassador for single malt whiskey. Not necessarily I love it, I mean I love all single malt. Some have got it better than others at different times, you know, a 12 year old might be better this year than it was two years ago. I've never really come across a bad whiskey. I've come across some whiskies that have been in bad casks, but that's not the distiller's fault, that's the guy who's purchasing the cask. But I've always regarded myself as being the luckiest guy in the world, and I appreciate truly what I have. Mm. I've come from a very, very poor family. I've got no education at all other than working in the distillery making whiskey. So, uh, uh, And wherever I go on and wherever I'm talking to people, it's always, I always take time out when people come from all over the world to be study. I make sure I take five minutes. If I see somebody from Tokyo and be study, I take five minutes and if you've come all the way yeah. from Tokyo, the least I can do is give you five minutes. Uh, there's a price to be paid in that as well because you do spend a lot of time talking to people and you should maybe be at home and stuff like that, like down here this weekend. This is not a major festival by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Next week is New York City. Uh, we'll have 2,000 people through the door in the first hour. But it's because of people like uh, the We Dram, Alice and Edith. They're genuinely nice people and mm. they're a pleasure to work with. And it's just a treat for us to come down and support the, the small guys as well, because we're a small company. But I regard the responsibility that goes to the job very, very seriously to always give the best and talk well of our nation, our product, our people at all times and I tell you, I've been really, really mm. lucky. You say you make your own luck. I mean, I've been lucky in the Flaherty. I can virtually make any kind of whiskey I wish. That's a tremendous freedom, yeah. you know. I mean, we make the most heavy peated malt in the world. We do quadruple distillation that nobody else does with you all. Nobody has ever said to me what to do and what not to do. So I've got this 
living laboratory with great distillers working in it and we can try anything and we're quite adventurous because if we don't do it nobody else is going to do it well, can I just pick you up on something there though Jim because you, you're saying a very specific word here which is the word we and one of the things that, that I feel about whiskey and Adrian has confirmed this today when I was talking to him is that whiskey okay whiskey is a drink but there's much more to it and one of the things that's to it is the people. Now, you've got a big reputation, but you also work within a, a team that are pretty remarkable in their own right. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the guys, well, I used to be in charge at Bumbo, I used to be a blend. I've worked with men all my life. I've always been managing guys and always gone led from the front. There's generally jeans and a T-shirt and getting in there with them and and at Rochladi it's really, really good because I've got a brilliant young team coming along now. They've got great noses, great palates. I give them complete respect. Everything we do, we taste, we talk about it. And to bring them on is fantastic. And we have a social responsibility as well to the island at Rochladi. I mean, we're very good. We're the biggest employer on the island, which is a bit bizarre for mm. the smallest company. We employ 50 people because it's all done in Isla. Bottling, storage, shipping, everything's done. Isla is the hub. And that's given me tremendous personal satisfaction and also satisfaction with people who work for us, who are all shareholders in the company, which mm. is quite unique in this modern world to be given shares in a company. Um, I'm really touched by it sometimes. And you know, you met my manager, Duncan McGillivray, another died in the wool, left school at 15, mm. worked as we are, brilliant genius engineer. We're keeping this old distillery going. It's 1881, Queen Victoria in the throne. We're still making whiskey there, man. Mm. You know, we don't need computers. Uh, and it very much is a team effort. And it's just a, a joy to see Brooklady and Port Charlotte and Octomore coming on. Particularly Port Charlotte and Octomore, because they're my children, you understand? Brooklady yeah. was there before me. I'm making it now, but before. And I'm looking at Port Charlotte and Octomore, and it's like. Looking at my own kids when they were young, I can remember when they were babies, they were beautiful. And I remember when they started crawling, they were beautiful. I remember them taking their first steps. And a year old, they were beautiful. And going to school with a school satchel, they were beautiful. And that's what it's like with Port Charlotte. It's like having another set of kids, you know. And each year you say, my God, you're coming out so beautiful. And Port Charlotte's reached that stage now, it's eight years old, I'm thinking, Wow, kid, you're just, I'm so proud of you, son, you know. It's like my favourite boy. I don't have yeah. any boys. Like, I'm so proud of you, son. And Optimore, you know, it's the heaviest peated mark in the world. Everybody thinks it's a bit of a bruiser. And that's the fact. It's very, very elegant, very sophisticated. And uh, it's just another handsome young guy, you know. And what about the X4? X4 is brilliant. It's, uh, that was a huge thing to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I've got a bottle of X4 at home. The original version. There's one. another one that's just growing up. Absolutely. I, I mean, I've, I've seen it here. Actually, I've got some right here. And the first thing, this is X3, X4 version 3. And one of the first things I noticed X4 about it. X4 plus 3, it's 3 plus years three. old. It's the right. first edition. Right. Yeah, so it's first edition, but it's now 3 years old. Correct. And, I mean, the thing about number 1, beautifully clear. No colour to it whatsoever. Yeah. But you now, with, with number three, you see in the colour coming through. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's, it's visually well, gr gr um, growing in front of your eyes here, isn't it? Well, it's and that's another one, you're looking at it. And that one right now, X4 plus 3, I'm taking it by the hand, you understand? Yeah. And, hey, come on, let's go. Whereas for Charlotte, it's like here. Yeah. And Optimore, they're like, yeah. But this is just the wee one, this is the baby of the family. And the whole story, you know the story behind X4? Yeah. About... The old recipe and... Yeah, 1695 was yeah. the last time it was made by the holy men on the island of Harris. So I read the book, Martin Martin, Journeys of the Western Miles. I thought, it was like a revelation. I'm reading about the Western, never looking for whiskey, because it's the only reference to whiskey, really. And it came with a warning, I believe. Yeah, I said, the holy men then, of that time, they said, um, one spoonful you live forever. Two spoonfuls, you go blind instantly, and three, your heart stops and you fall down dead. Yeah, I love that story. I thought, can you believe it? Three hundred and fifteen years ago, these were guys were distilling four times, and it hasn't been done since. Shit, I got to do this, man. I really, really got to do this. 
and it was quite dangerous because they were using small stills probably about that size and we were using huge still uh, it was just probably one of the most exciting things in 48 years uh, was going on to that fourth distillation uh, I was working with an old stillman I was doing it at night when there was nobody around in case I blew the whole place up you know which is quite likely you know so Isla could have become two islands yeah could be North Isla <laughs> South Isla yeah. a big hole in the middle of it so I remember saying to the stillman who was with me Neil I said Neil we are going where no malt has gone before this is a Starship Enterprise. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and right over his head, he didn't follow the Starship Enterprise. Uh, I said, we're in the fourth distillation now, and the hydrometer's rising. We're now at 81, climbing quite fast. And I could see he was somewhat apprehensive. And he said, is there anything I can do to help you, Jim? And I said, yep. Yeah. I said, go and get two fire extinguishers. And if I vaporize and flame, <laughs> Please try and save me. Yeah. No problem, Jim. I was kidding. It was a joke I was having with Three minutes later, he comes back with two fights. And he's got them out and he's pointing <laughs> at me. I said, Neil, we're at 86 and she's still climbing. 86%. He says, take her home, Jim. Neil McTaggart's watching you. You're safe enough. It was like Scotty, most power. <laughs> so, I am like this, yeah. Neil, I said, it's still coming up. CP65. He says, no problem, Jim. I'm right with you. <laughs> 87. Neil, we're at 88. You're fine, Jim. I'm watching you. <laughs> and we touched 89.4. Highest ever recorded. And then she settled down. Still settled. This is high as you can go. It's the first time it's ever been done. And she settled at 89, that was a high. And she just dipped a little bit, just below 89. And then we cruised for about 12 hours, running it so slowly. It was like that. One drip at a time. Like yeah. For 12 hours, she ran. It's just the most incredible journey, you know? This old still, I'm like, yeah. It's just beautiful. People said, ah, it's a Jim McEwen gimmick. No. I was genuinely wanted to do it. If the old guys had done it, then why not us? Uh, so we do commend her for our favourite criticism because of what we do, you know? But we are bespoke distillers. We are boutique distillers. I mean, we using the greatest cast in the world, we're using Chateau Petrus mm. cask, you know, we're using Chateau Weekend, we're using Burroughs, we're using Amazing. Um, what does the consumer want? They want quality guarantee, and they want choice, that's what they want. That's mm. why we love to go shopping, we love when there's a choice to be made. So we represent about 1% of the whole industry, so, and we're green, we're just putting in uh, <coughs> An anaerobic digester now will be running the whole distillery and byproduct. Right. Um, it's, it should be starting up in the next couple of weeks. We're very green, we use Isla barley, so all the Isla farmers have a new lease of life. A lot of people working in our bottling hall and stuff like that. But um, the, the variety of things we do, we tend to attract a lot of criticism unfairly, like X4 plus 3. Isn't it just a miracle that for the first time yeah, you in yeah, 15 wonderful. years you'll say, hey, I remember I spoke to this guy and done it big well or like 18 years ago. This whiskey, conceivably, because of its high strength, will become the oldest ever known whiskey. It'll still be 75 years old and still be above 40%. Mm. 50 years is the oldest whiskey in Scotland. Isn't it? It'll still be 75. It's a new experience because of the high intensity and the purity of it. It's ripping into the oak. It's extracting all the vanillin and all the wood shears. Look at the colour of it already. Mm. It's absolutely pure, you know? The texture is just like... Yeah. I can stand here for two weeks. I'm not going to fall off. Mm. You think of the angle your tongue's at, how long is it going to stay in your tongue? Mm. The viscosity is incredible. You just rub it in there like that. Normal alcohol, which will... So, uh, yeah, we do track a little bit of criticism, but we live with that, you know. And beyond that, 
And so we've, we've got a little following of Goslavi fans. It's like if you want a good suit, you ain't going to go to Asda. Yeah. You're going to go to a tailor who will measure you and say, right, son. Or if you want a good pair of shoes, you're not going to buy plastic shoes, you're going to buy leather shoes. Yeah. It's the same with a single ball fan that comes to Goslavi. They know we're trying really hard. 40% of our production is organic. Now that's expensive to make organic whiskey because you, one ton of organic is twice the cost of a regular ton of barley. You know, so it's all that stuff. We're trying to really, we hate artificial colouring. We just loathe it, and it's it's out there. You know? And we hate gel filtration. Fortunately, more and more companies now are going to 46. Yeah, it's just great. It's just yeah. fantastic news. They're all moving slowly, but and why is that? Because the guys like you talking about it, the consumers are listening and saying, why are you taking the oil? The oil has come from the barley. There's natural oil which held that in my finger. It's come from the barley. Why are you taking it out? Yeah. Ah, because you're stupid and you don't know. We don't really care what you think. So that's a big swing. That's the biggest swing. The next biggest swing is to get rid of the artificial colour. That would be amazing. That would regenerate a whole coopering industry. But a lot of that, I think, actually also comes down to people <coughs> like myself, the whiskey drinker, just turning around and saying, no, we, don't, we understand colouring. Mm. We don't need to have artificial colouring put in to make it look a certain way. We can understand that just because it looks that way doesn't mean it's... Just because it's light does not mean that it's... Because that, that's what used to be the myth, didn't it? That a good whiskey's dark. Exactly. And it, and it came from means nothing. E-150. Um, I judge internationally, and I can tell you, in international judging, the best competitions in the world, you score on the colour, the nose, the palette, the finish, the whole lot. First one up, first category up is colour. Mm. That is always marked zero. It's the standing order is zero because it means Right. That's in international competitions. Yeah. So, if it means nothing to international competitions, surely it means nothing to the consumer. But it does. The consumer yeah. hasn't been told about it. So, we can rattle the can a little bit of the cloud. But, I will say, there's some, even at this small festival, some amazing, Glen Glasser Spa, isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. I just, stunning, you know. Uh, you see that old story back. And they've got a 50-year-old in there. And I remember I met that in a blind tasting uh, this year. A sherry, the glass 50-year-old. And I gave it 100 points. I think it was the first whiskey ever to get 100 points at this particular competition. And it's there. We didn't know what it was. As judges, you don't know. You're judging blind. Yeah. And it turned out it was going glasser. And it's great. The old style. That colour came naturally from a sherry cask. It wasn't artificially coloured. Can you imagine artificially colouring that, screwing it all up? But life is good. Um, my time is almost over. I've got two years to go. Right. And then I'll be putting the saddle on the horse and heading off into the horizon uh, after 50 years. It's been very, very emotional, you know. I've had some amazing personal experiences. You know, when you travel and you know, you, sometimes it, you go along a line of casks and they're all very beautiful and for some reason one of them just jumps out and yeah. embraces you and says, wow, you are so beautiful. You're just unbelievable, you know, it's like... What would be the one whiskey that you could bring back? One that you've had, you remember it, it's now gone, but you wish you could bring back? Ah, for sure. Easy. When I was in charge at Beaumont, uh, I was asked to select the sequence of the Black release, the Black Bamore releases. Right. Black Bamore is one of the greatest. That was 1964 at Oloroso. And I knew it well. I knew the cast well. They were in the cellar beside the sea. And I started in 1963 as apprentice cooper. So part of our job was filling the casks. So I remember filling these bats in 1964. And here we were years and years and years later. And I'm back as the manager of Bamore. And I've been say, asked to select the pecking order. I think there was only like six casts in total. So I had to pick first edition, second edition, and third edition, and then submit them to the board for approval. And 
and whiskey at this point was 30 years old uh, and it was a Friday afternoon and November, December time and there was a hell of a gale coming in off the west coast, it's going right off Canada, gale force 8, Friday afternoon, everybody's gone home. It was me and I lit, I've got my flashlight, it's a cellar so there's no electricity sort of thing and I've got my glass and my pipette and I'm down there and I've got this sat there and the whiskey's lined up and the, there's no windows in the cellar, the sea spray was coming in and I'm sitting there and I was quite tired and quite emotional and this wind was hurling and I'm sitting there and nosing I smell the vanilla on that yeah we're sitting there nosing these great, great whiskies, thinking back. And for whatever that happens to me emotionally, I started thinking of all the people who had been there in 1964. Okay. And they were virtually all dead. They were deceased. And here was I, the urchin from the moor, having the privilege to select there were men who I couldn't even polish their boots. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about John the Maltman. I'm thinking, what a great guy. And Willie the Mashman. And all these guys came out of the glass. And it was quite sad. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, of, you know, I remember going to Round Church when my good friend Davy Bell died, you know. I'm thinking about old Davy. They were all involved in this. And suddenly, some tear drops start to fall from my eyes. I'm thinking, it's just a scary moment. Unforgettable. Mm. And I, put it, I had a drown, put it back in the cask and went, this is amazing. Isn't it? So all the people were coming from the glass. I went home to my young wife. <clears throat> she said, are you okay, Jim? I said, well, I don't really know. She said, you look like you've seen a ghost. I said, I haven't actually seen a ghost, but I've been communicating with ghosts through a glass. She said, you're crazy, man. You are really, really crazy. I said, I explained the situation to you. So when you ask me what's the one I'll never forget, it was that moment alone in the vaults of Bomoa, the storm coming in and smelling out, and all the guys coming out and the character and the personality of these people was evident in the whiskey. Yeah. The honesty and the integrity of these men came out. It was like, wow. You've released the genies and like, wow. But isn't that, isn't that one of the things about whiskey, though, that it can hold that sort of an experience to a degree that other, other drinks don't? Because this, back to this thing, it's more than a drink. Wow. I, mean, I have a similar thing with Macallan. And it's not really my story, but my father-in-law, who died last year, he's, he had three daughters. I married one of them, obviously. And when, whenever one of his daughters was born, he was, a, he was a quite a high-ranking doctor. And whenever one of his daughters was born, he'd go to the consultant who was responsible for the team and give them a bottle of Macallan as nice. a thank you. Yeah. And it became a tradition thing that he did. So when he got to 80... We bought a, a vintage bottle of Macallan and we gave him the bottle of Macallan. Nice. But unfortunately, he didn't open it and he died oh, before he had a chance to taste it. So that bottle's going to come back into my selection. You know what I mean? And I've not, I've not opened it. I will open it one yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I'm a yeah, big believer that whiskey should be drunk. <laughs> um, <coughs> But I haven't opened it yet, but it's there. And it's just the sight of it. There's something about whiskey that can do that. And I bet you'll taste better than any whiskey because of that um, association. Yeah. You know, this mental association. And the value of and the value of the man. So you're going to have the same experience yeah. as me, coming from a different angle, because you will yeah. remember this guy and how good he was and your father and the you know, your wife is all yeah. wrapped up in this bottle. Well, funny thing They're is, all part of that story, you know. Funny thing is, I almost have a similar sort of association with Brookladdy whiskey, <clears throat> because I can remember going up to Scotland for New Year once. We hired a youth hostel, 
the whole hostel, took it over, and we celebrated Christmas and stayed on New Year up there. And my wife gave me a bottle of Brook Laddie, and it was just after Brook Laddie had reopened, and it's one of the first ones that, that came out. And up to that point, I'd been drinking whiskey, enjoying whiskey, had a mild interest in whiskey. And I can remember when she gave me that bottle, looking at the packaging and everything of it, mm. and thinking, you know, I've got to get to know this stuff better than I do. Sure. And it was like another stepping stone in my journey into so, uh, being is, immersed. It's going to go forever and oh, ever. Oh, absolutely. It's just fantastic. I mean, Mark Gillespie, I know you've met Mark Yeah, he's a good guy, yeah. He went mm. through a stage of, of asking people the question, in many years' time, you know, come to that final dram, what would you choose? And I'm not going to ask you that question, because he's already asked you that one, and I, I, can, I can remember, I've got it written, recorded at home. But I, I kept thinking, what would my answer to that be? And my answer would be, I don't know what that whiskey is yet, because... I'm still on that journey, I'm travelling along, and that for me is one of the things, just one of the things that I love about whiskey, it is a journey that... It's see, on that journey you will meet whiskies that you're going to love, like the Macallan, you're going to love that one, and you'll meet other ones along the journey. When it comes to the final choice, you'll probably have about six that have made a big impression on you not primarily just because of the taste, but because of the circumstances, the mm. place you were, who you were with at that time, what happened at that time. Mm. Uh, myself, I think I'll probably, my last round will probably be Port Charlotte. I'm watching the kid growing, you know? Yeah. And hopefully I'll live for a few years yet and he'll be there beside me. It's like my son, you know? Yeah. Uh, I would think it'd be one of these, my own creations sort of thing. Difficult question, um, but it's going to mean something really important to yeah. you. You know, I like that McCann did. You know, that time. Jim, thank you ever so much. No, it's been a pleasure. Yeah. 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 That it's. I can honestly say, if I if I go away home now, <laughs> I'll still be a happy man. That was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's a pleasure talking to you. It was interesting in your story about the doctor, man. Now then, after the interview, I came out of the kitchen, found the friends who had come to the event with me, quickly said hello to them, told them a little bit about how the interview had gone, found a quiet little corner, gathered myself, and then went on and enjoyed the rest of the day. Because, you know, it really was a good day. And I've already thanked Adrian for organising such a good event, but of course, it's not just down to Adrian, is it? Um, behind every good man there's a great woman and in his case it was Alison who I'm sure was very much present in the organisation and the running of that day so thank you to her as well now at the very end of the day I returned to the Brook Laddie stand and I had another conversation with Jim McEwen this time I didn't record it but Jim did say to me he was going to send me um, a sample of something to try and just as I was about to broadcast this episode, the post came and there was this parcel and it was that sample. So I've had a, a quick taste of it, but I will return to it and taste it better um, on another occasion. And I'll post those notes when I do. The sample that Jim sent me was a Brook Laddie 1992 at 51.7% from cask number six, drawn from the cask on the 28th of October 2010, and it was aced in a Calvados cask. Now, let me tell you a little bit about what I thought about this whiskey. Appearance, it was it's pale. Um, I was, first of all, I thought it's like a lemon juice colour, but no, there's a bit of an additional hue to it. It's almost like a lime juice. There's that slight hint of a green to it as well. Its legs were, I found them to be thin, close and, and slow. The nose, oh, beautifully clean, fresh, slightly citric nose with a hint of, of tobacco. 
Now, when I say tobacco, I'm not talking cigarettes. I'm talking about the fresh tobacco leaf. When it enters into your mouth, you've got a full mouthfeel there. But it's dry. It's a dry whiskey, but although it's dry, still very lively. With tastes of fresh tobacco and cocoa and a little hint of almost like ash. This is a definite, no-nonsense spirit with a bitter buried fruit on the on the aftertaste. It's a strong whisky, and a little bit of water rounds it off beautifully. That little bit of water I found brought out almost like a beautiful handmade dark chocolate-covered chilli. Um, very nice, and not at all what I was expecting from the from the first appearance and from the Calvados cask. I wasn't getting hints of apple, but what I was getting was almost like that, the sharpness of an apple skin, a red apple skin. Now I say red apple because the that beautiful bitterness that you can get sometimes with fruit, like you can get when the tomato's got a thick skin, comes from the redness that's within that skin. And that is the sort of sense that I was picking up from it. It's like the, the, the sharpness you can get from the skin of a red grape. Anyway, those are just my first impressions. An impressive whiskey, um, one that I've enjoyed that's that very quick taste that I have had, and I'm sure I'm going to enjoy it even more so the next time I taste it and I have a bit more time to do it properly. So thank you for that, Jim. And thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode of the Morted Muse podcast. I have really enjoyed it. I hope you have too. And once more I say, if you want to contact me, please do so at jim at the Morted Muse. Thank you again, and for now, goodbye.